Well, this morning we're back in 1 Timothy, and the title of our series, A Church Fit for Purpose. Let me thank you once again for the correspondence and the conversations on 1 Timothy. It is very genuinely much appreciated and helps me and the others preach better. Thank you too to our small group leaders and others leading Bible studies for the time invested in preparing for the motto series. I think the consequence of this will be that as a church family, we will thoroughly know a New Testament book of the Bible, and that's a good thing and a helpful thing. This morning, we come to chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, just uh, three uh, verses. They are key verses, though, because they tell us why Paul wrote the letter. So let's read them, and then we have the time to study them carefully this morning. So chapter 3, verse 14 to 16. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things, the letter, to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, please keep that open in front of you, and also if you can have the notes on the service sheet to hand, but let me lead us in prayer for a moment. Let us pray. Our Father, teach us how we ought to behave in the church, which is the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Teach us how we ought to behave, and help us to humbly submit to and accept what you say. Thank you for helping us to do that as a church as we have studied this letter. Thank you for the conversations, the correspondence, time studying your word together in our small groups. All of it building our unity as together we seek to live and grow in accordance with your word. Our Father, teach us also what is the truth that the church is to defend and to proclaim, and enable us, with the help of your Spirit, so to defend it and so to proclaim it. And our Father, as we are reminded today of that truth, may we be caught up by your Spirit in the wonder and the greatness of it. May we be found confessing, great indeed is the mystery of godliness that has been revealed to us. So hear and answer these prayers for the sake of your Son, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Now the first heading on the sheet, the letter describes how we ought to behave in church. That is why Paul wrote the letter. Let me read again. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay... And the clear implication of that is that 
if he were able to be with them in person, these are the things he would have said, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, how we ought to behave. That is the language that Paul uses, how we ought to behave. Now, the question is why we ought to behave in this way. Much of what we have studied so far is how we are to behave. The question is why? Now, in these verses, there are three answers to that question. Because we are the household of God, because we are the church of the living God, and because we are the pillar and buttress of the truth. Or, we are to behave in this way because of what the church is. It is the household of God, it is the church of the living God, it is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Somebody disagrees. Now, I think with all of the stuff of life that has kind of surrounded us this morning that finds us here a little kind of sleepy and a little out of step and a little this, that, and the other, if you're anything like me, we've got to kind of steal ourselves and get our heads around the fact that sitting in this room, along with the others in the other services and folks who are away and whoever makes up this family, what Chalmers is as a local church is it's not just us as different people from different walks of life. Here we are in the middle of Morningside and we are the household of God, the church of the living God the pillar and buttress of the truth. And that's a very big deal. And a wonderful deal. Now, lest we miss the wood for the trees, what links these three descriptions of the church? What links the descriptions, the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth? The word of, or of the, see that? It is the household of God. It is the church of the living God. It is a pillar and buttress of the truth, or of God's truth. It is God's church, not ours. It is God's church, and we are called, instructed to behave in the way that he commends. It is not our church, and we are not at liberty to behave in the way we would wish. And that is very important We are not at liberty to behave in the way that we would wish if it is different from the way that God commends. Now, that doesn't mean to say we don't ask questions. And let me keep repeating that. When you write to us and ask questions, almost always the question you ask is a question others want to ask. And it makes the sermons richer and better and more nuanced and more thoughtful. It doesn't mean we don't ask questions. It doesn't mean we don't take time really to understand what God is saying to us through his word. It doesn't mean we are always going to find it straightforward or easy to come to terms with. 
But in the end, we all need to come to the point where we need to accept that it's God's church and not ours and do what he says. And when we do that, we realize very quickly that God not only has the right to say what he says, but what he says is right and good. Now, let me spend a bit of time on each phrase in turn. We ought to behave in this way because we are the household of God. The household or house of God is not, of course, referring to a physical building, but to the family of God. So, a good analogy might be the house of Windsor for all the crown watchers like me. Now, the household of God is the house of God or the family of God. It is a family where God is the Father and our fellow Christians are our brothers and sisters. We are children of God. I mean, I listened to a wonderful sermon this week by Alistair Begg. You should listen to his sermon on this. Bad news when you are doing that the week you're preaching, but I I kind of lost the plot and was tempted and listened to it, and it was wonderful. It was just wonderful. And he he made this point that that, uh, somebody had said to him, look, you Christians just make up stuff to persuade us to believe it. And he said, look, you just can't make up this stuff. It's not very persuasive and logical that I'm saying to you this morning, here you are, you are the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth, and now I'm about to tell you that you're in God's family and you're a child of God like Jesus. I mean, it's so, it's so radically otherworldly. It's not designed to convince you. It's logically reasonable and true. As children of God, we obey our Father and... He is the only perfect Father that deserves unreserved obedience. We bear His name. We are honored to be in His household. And what blessings there are to those who belong. As children of God, we are heirs jointly with Christ of a glorious eternal inheritance. We have access to God as Father. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven. So when Rog led us in prayer this morning, we had a channel into God's ear. No different from his son does. We can talk to him ourselves. We do not need someone to do that on our behalf. And we have access to God in an even more fundamental way. Through Jesus' sacrificial death, that once and for all perfect sacrifice, that is full and free access to God that comes through being fully forgiven. There is no need for a priest to broker our access to God. We have access to Him fully, and we enjoy His provision, His correction, His protection, and His love, and a manner of love like no other. See, John writes, what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. It is, as one writer puts it, a lasting, consistent, tenacious inseparable love because we cannot be cut free from it. Who shall separate us, Paul writes, from his love? Nothing is the answer. Now, we ought to behave in the way that God says because we are in the house of God. We are in the house or the family of of God. Do not do it because you have to. 
Do it because it is our privilege. A local expression of God's family, his house, is a place loved tenaciously by God, a place that loves God, a place that loves one another, and a place that lives in accordance with God's pattern and God's ways. Now, second, we ought to behave in this way because we are the church of the living God. Now, what is God's purpose for the church, the universal church, and local churches like Chalmers as an expression of that? What is God's purpose for the church? Well, let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 3. Through the church, this is getting more and more unbelievable, (laughs) this is who we are, that through this local church, Paul has already said, you're the household of God. This is the house of the living God with all the privileges and all the uh, blessings. You bear God's name in this community. But you are also the church of the living God. The purpose of the church, Ephesians 3 and 10, that through the church, that through this local church and every local church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The manifold, the multifaceted, the multicolored wisdom of God revealed through the church. And where is God's wisdom to be found? In God's Word. And so a church that behaves in a way that accords with God's Word is a church that displays God's wisdom and makes God's wisdom known. Why is it that Paul refers to the church as the church of the living God? Is he intending a contrast between the living God and gods with a small g or idols? Plausibly, yes. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And that's what a local church is, full of people who have turned from idols to serve the living God. And idols can be mental as well as metal. The idol of religion or the idol of culture or the idol of self. We ought to behave in this way because we are the church of the living God. And we ought to behave in this way because we are a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now, were I preaching in a grand cathedral, I could illustrate by pointing you to buttresses and pillars. We don't have any pillars. The buttress of a building is its foundation which supports and stabilizes the building. The best word to describe buttress, though, is buttress itself. It's a word that we can get and understand. It's the bit that makes the building steady. It's the cornerstone, the foundations. Underneath this building, there will be uh, deep, solid foundations. This building is not going to blow down. The church is responsible to hold the truth steady, to guard the truth 
against the storms of heresy and unbelief. That is what it means that the church is the buttress of the truth. And what are the pillars or columns? The purpose of pillars is twofold. One, to hold the roof firm, and second, to hold it up high. In St. Helens in London, when the, the bomb blew up the stock exchange close to the building, the pillars in the church had cracks in them, and then the roof became unstable. Remember Dick telling me that? The roof became unstable because the pillars had cracks. So the pillars hold up the roof, and the pillars also hold the roof high so that it can be seen from a distance. Now, the inhabitants of Ephesus had a very powerful illustration of that in their temple of Diana or Artemis. Regarded as one of the seven wonders of the world, it boasted a hundred um, ionic columns, each over apparently 18 meters high, which together lifted its shining marble roof so everybody could see it. And the analogy is that the church holds the truth up high so it can be seen by the world. And indeed, as pillars hold a building high while themselves remaining unseen, so the church's function is not to promote itself, but to promote the truth. And so the church's responsibility regarding the truth, one, as its buttress or foundation, it is to hold the truth fast or firm so that it doesn't collapse under the weight of false teaching. Two, as its pillar, it is to hold the truth high so it is not hidden from the world. To hold the truth firm means to defend and confirm the gospel. To hold the truth high is to proclaim the gospel. And the church is called to do both. Now, when Paul says in Timothy that the church is to pillar and buttress the truth, to hold it fast and to hold it up and to hold it out, I think Paul intends us to ask a question in our minds, is that really right? Is that really the relationship between the church and the truth? Is it really so that the church is the foundation of the truth, or is it not that the truth is the foundation of the church? I think he intends us to ask that question, and he intends us perhaps to go somewhere like Ephesians where he writes, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Same word, household of God, the church, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is joined together. So in Ephesians, Paul says, the church is founded on the truth. So the truth is the buttress. And in Timothy, he says, the church buttresses the truth and holds it up 
on its pillars. Now, which is it? The answer is both. It's both. The church depends on the truth for its existence, and the truth depends on the church for its defense and its proclamation. Let me read that again. The church depends on the truth for its existence. The truth depends on the church for its defense and proclamation. And one of the challenges for the church in whatever period of history it's in is to, is to lean which way you need to lean because of the times in which we live. So we live in a time where the church depends on the truth for its existence, but we live perhaps more in a time where the truth depends on the church for its defense and its proclamation. And in 1 Timothy, he majors on the latter. He's not saying that the church is not founded on the truth. He's saying, look, in the culture in Ephesus, and perhaps in the culture we live in in the Western world today, the truth depends on, and let me apply it more particularly, on local churches, every local church in this city, understanding that it has a responsibility to defend and to proclaim that truth. To make sure that in this church, not this building, but in this church, the buttresses are strong and the pillars don't have cracks in them and the truth is held up high. Which is why, until my job is done here, I will do what I can to teach you the Bible, equip you to read, understand, and think biblically. It is what takes front and center in our training programs, that the next generation might be equipped. In every generation, the truth depends on the church for its defense and proclamation. Who will defend and proclaim the truth in this generation and in the next generation? And in the next generation after that generation. Which I think is why as a church, with a difficult letter like 1 Timothy, you know, what I could have done is persuaded the elders, look, this is quite a complex letter to study. Why don't you just let me preach it and let Rog do the difficult bits? Just the two of us. What the elders said, no, is let's, let's put the book out into the heart of the church. And let's all study it together. That's good. And my desire is that we become biblically knowledgeable. We need to become that more and more that we might be able to discern. To say, no, this is wrong or this is right. To defend the truth, to proclaim the truth and to hold it up high. Now, what is the truth? And this is a great, great little bit in Timothy. What is the truth that the church depends on for its existence? What is the truth that depends on the church for its defense and proclamation? Verses 14 to 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Now, just to 
say the word mystery doesn't mean mystery. Well, it, it does, obviously. <laughs> that was, didn't come out the right way. The word mystery in the Bible means something that previously had been secret, but now God has chosen to make known. So Paul will talk about the mystery that has been revealed to him, the mystery kept in ages hidden in the heart of God that has now been revealed. And what God has made known, what God has revealed is great. It is great indeed to confess the mystery of godliness. To have that revealed to us is wonderful. God reveals his truth in creation. It's what people call common grace or common revelation. God reveals his truth in a saving way in his word and supremely in the living God in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. Now, we worship Jesus. Somebody rightly just questioned in terms of the rhetoric I use on Sundays. And of course, we, is, it, is that absolutely front and square, that we worship Jesus? We worship the living Word. We do not worship the Word of God. We worship Jesus. Yet the way we worship Jesus rightly in spirit and in truth, is by so saturating ourselves, by so meditating on, by making our habitat the Word of God. Why? Because it is through God's inspired words in the hands of God's convicting Spirit that we encounter the living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the object of worship is Jesus. Now, what Paul gives us here in these one, two, three, four, five, six lines is not an exhaustive confession of Christian truth. Where's Jenny? She's leading our band today. Jenny, in the next 12 minutes, I'd like you to compose a melody for these words. It's a hymn, probably almost certainly, a bit like the hymn in Ephesians, uh, Philippians chapter 2. It's probably a hymn that they would have sung. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I meant it, Jenny. You're not doing anything. <laughs> She's thinking. You need to translate it back into Greek. Now, what I try to do is, is, all you can do with this is mess it up and take something that's melodic and tuneful and, and a poem and turn it into some kind of six-pointer, which I have done. I've just taken each line. What does each line say? It's like a symphony, a, a song. He was manifested in the flesh, the incarnation of Jesus. He was vindicated by the Spirit, the vindication by the Spirit throughout his life. He was seen by angels. He was observed by the angelic beings. He was proclaimed among the nations, the proclamation of the gospel. He was believed on in the world. People accepted and submitted to that proclamation. And then Jesus Christ was taken up in glory, the exaltation after his resurrection and the exaltation at the end of time when the new heavens and the new earth are established. So let me just try for us to capture something of the mystery of the greatness of godliness. And at this point, um, the letter changes gear very, very markedly. And it has been a hard letter. 
I mean, if the purpose of a letter is that you might behave properly, there's a possibility that we might not be behaving properly in every way. And we've got to just accept that sometimes God's Word will work in us in a, in a way, and then as we obey what He says, we begin to see the transformation and the fruit of that as we are seeing. But now the letter changes gear because God, through His apostle, as He inspires him, says, look, these guys just... We need to be caught up with the extraordinary mystery of godliness that has been revealed to us. So tell them that they are God's house, that they are the church of the living God, that they are given the great privilege and responsibility to buttress and hold up these columns that truth is proclaimed in this city, and then allow them to meditate on the greatness of the godliness that has been revealed to them. So he was manifested in the flesh. That in a moment of time in history, Jesus became what he was not, a man, while still being who he always was, namely God. John writes in 1.14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Kendrick gets it spot on and his best hymn, Meekness and Majesty, Manhood and Deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. The mystery of the incarnation is part of the mystery of godliness. And because Jesus Christ was born a man, because He became what He was not while still being who He always was, namely God, there has to be something before His incarnation. There has to be a pre-existence because He could not have been made incarnate or made flesh from somewhere. And behind that mystery, which is extraordinary and astonishing and has been revealed to you, is the mystery of the Trinity, that Father, Son, and Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal, perfect, plural, this is from Alistair Begg, brilliant, perfect, plural, powerful, and praiseworthy. You try saying that. Perfect, plural, powerful, praiseworthy. God, from everlasting to everlasting, becomes a man. And it's that point in his sermon that he says, people level against Christians, that Christianity is something that Christians make up to get people to believe. You just could not make this stuff up. It's just so different, so, so wonderful. Shouldn't we get just rid of some of that stuff about the, the, the co-equal, co-eternal, Trinitarian God, which no preacher has ever managed to explain properly? That this God from all eternity invades our space and time world and becomes a human fetus? Extraordinary. But it's how God has made himself known in creation, in his word. And when you're preaching from God's word, I'd want to suggest to you, and it's nothing to do with my oratory or anything like that, that the Word of God, when it is preached, is compelling. It makes an impact on our hearts. But what makes the greatest impact on our hearts 
is, as Wesley put it in his great hymn, that our God was contracted to a span and incomprehensibly made man. The God who made the heavens and the earth came at a moment in time in human flesh. He became what he was not, a man, without ever ceasing to be what he always was, God. The mystery of the incarnation. And of course, in his incarnation, there is profound humiliation because the God-man became the man of sorrows who died unrepeatable and unimitable humiliation. Here's a great old hymn by a man called John Chapman. One day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, dwelt among men, my example is he. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, O glorious day. And you can see why in the middle of 1 Timothy, singing this song, confessing the greatness of the mystery of godliness, for me, and I hope for you by the power of the Spirit, puts all that he has said, all this tough stuff about behaving in a way that is in accordance with how you should be in my household, just raises our eyes and our hearts to God. Incarnation, vindication by the Spirit, that's the second line of the song, Jesus vindicated by the Spirit, when it is baptism. Remember from Mark, when he came up out of the water, the heavens were torn open and the Spirit descended on him and the Spirit with the voice. There's a great illustration of even at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Spirit of God and the words of God. The Spirit of God descends on Jesus, the voice, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The vindication of the Spirit, the vindication of the Spirit at Jesus' Uh, resurrection. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, empowered according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Romans 1, chapter 4. Vindication by the Spirit. Then observation. He was manifested in the flesh. Incarnation. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Vindication. He was seen by angels. Where? And when? Well, in his birth, in his temptation, when he makes his return to heaven. But the emphasis here is probably on his resurrection. Matthew 28, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat in it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. He said, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. The angels were there observing the glories of redemption. But one of the striking things about that is that you have stuff and have seen stuff 
and have experienced stuff that angels just can't get their head around. So think of the archangel Michael or the archangel Gabriel looking down on us this morning, this motley bunch, and wondering at stuff like, what would it like to be converted? Imagine, how is it that God took him or her and made them him or her? Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Paul is talking about, Peter is talking about his great commission to preach the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things that angels long to look into, the proclamation of the good news. You could imagine Michael saying to Gabriel, I wish I was a preacher. It's a marvelous, marvelous thing. Wish I could do that. Imagine when the Apostle Paul was converted. Michael would have dug Gabriel in the arm and said, just look at that. Isn't that extraordinary? How has God managed to get that motley group together in Chalmers Church at half past nine on a Sunday, all loving Jesus? How has he managed that? It's extraordinary. Wish I could be a preacher. Angels would love to know what you know. Angels would love to know what it's like to become a Christian. Angels would love to know what it's like to be redeemed. Angels would love to know what it's like to come from darkness to light. And you know personally what that is. Incarnation, vindication, observation, proclamation. He was manifest. You had no confidence I'd get through all six, would you? We're on number four. We should slow down. No. Proclamation. He was manifested in the flesh. Incarnation. Vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. What a wonderful, wonderful phrase that is. Here we are stuck in Morningside. And the, this little hymn or this little section in Timothy has been saying to us, you are part of my household here. You are the church of the living God. Your job is to buttress and hold up the truth. But now he raises our eyes way above the parapets of this particular local church, and he reminds us that Christ is to be proclaimed among the nations. And the nations of the earth And every time I expect when, when that truth is spoken or sung, the Holy Spirit might well be active in somebody's heart and saying to them, who will, who will go next? Who will go to the nations? No matter what it costs, no matter what it means, Alistair Begg, in his sermon, quotes uh, Eric Little leaving Edinburgh after his Olympic victory at Waverley Station. And if you walk down from the church here, when you get to Morningside Holy Corner, 
the one with all the churches. The church on the far side of the road, in fact, the big church, the Eric Little Center, was where he was in church. The one on the other side of the road, just have a look at the stained glass windows when you go down. They're of him winning his race and then in China in his concentration camp. And uh, when he left Waverley Station, he leaned out of the window on the train and shouted, Christ for the world, because the world needs Christ. And they led the singing of this hymn, All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. Why did Eric Little do that? Because he had learned the mystery of godliness. Because he heard these words, Christ for the nations. And he went. Incarnation, vindication, observation, proclamation, affirmation, Acceptance would have been better, but affirmation rhymes. He was believed on in the world. It's just acceptance. And think of when this was written in the first century. They were singing this hymn, and I wonder if they were singing the hymn, Oh, I just wonder if this will be true, that Christ will be preached to the nations. After all, we've not got very far so far. And remember when Paul ended his life, Christ had gone to the nations But the probability of that carrying on was virtually nil. And yet we could sing that hymn now. Roger's praying for, Andrew rather was praying for our mission partners in East Asia, Africa. Christ of the nations. He was believed on in the world. And then finally, exaltation. He was taken up in glory. This is the exaltation after the death and resurrection of Jesus, his coronation. But it points also, I think, to the not yet dimension of that, his return in triumphant glory. Now, all this stuff is amazing. The mystery of God. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. The incarnation, vindication, observation, proclamation, affirmation, and exaltation, all surrounding Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh. Now, how on earth is anyone going to believe any of that? I mean, it's it's just astonishing, extraordinary. And you know, because it's so out of this world, that that's what increasingly convinces me just how true it is. It gives me great confidence as a minister of the gospel that the message I proclaim is not the message the world sings. That authenticates the message. I just wish 
I was a minister in a time where there was a great response to the gospel. I would much rather be living in a time where my job was not to buttress the truth. But it is. And it's our job in the West to buttress the truth. It's hard. And to hold it up. And to be humble enough to turn this hymn on its head and accept that when people in other parts of the world sing Christ for the nations, they look to us and send people to us. And we need to thank God if he does that. How on earth are people going to ever believe this, though? Well, let me read to you as we close from 2 Corinthians. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, as we say virtually every Sunday, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we prayed that you would teach us how we ought to behave in the church, which is the house of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Lord, we've not all found it easy to work through this material in 1 Timothy, who of any of us has in truth. But you have helped us to humbly submit to it and accept what you say. Thank you for helping us to do that as a church as we have studied this letter. Thank you for the conversations, the correspondence, the time spent, invested in it. And thank you, Lord, for this wonderful shaft of brilliant light in this glorious song in the middle of this letter. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness that has been revealed to us, Jesus, 
manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken into everlasting glory. May these truths inspire us and thrill our hearts for Jesus' sake. 